This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, if you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some free copies for you. And so if you'd like to have one, uh, lift your hand and uh, someone will bring one to you. And that's, that's yours to take with you should you need one. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for this gift from him. This morning we are taking the next section of 1 Samuel. We're going to do six chapters this morning, which is a lot to cover, 1 Samuel chapters 7 through 12. And so I want to summarize the story of these six chapters so that we have the story in our minds, and then we'll draw out some things that will help us, I pray. After the ark returned to Israel, as Mike preached about last week, Samuel calls the people to return to the Lord with all their hearts and to put away the foreign gods that they had been worshiping. Samuel then guides the people as judge in Israel for a number of years, and they, they began to seek help from the Lord and during this time, the Lord comes, and with a mighty work of His power, He defeats the Philistines at the famous battle of Ebenezer, where they set up the stone of help in celebration of the work that the Lord had done. Samuel's sons eventually begin to labor as judges alongside Samuel, but they begin to seek personal gain and pervert justice. And in response to this, the people of Israel ask Samuel to appoint for them a king like the nations have, to be their judge and to fight their battles. And this request displeases Samuel. And he warns the people that if they get their desired king, he will take much from their loved ones and from their livelihoods. But still the Lord grants their request, and he chooses Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Then Samuel anoints Saul as king. The Spirit comes upon Saul, 
And then Samuel explains to the people what the role and the responsibilities of the king will be. After Saul is anointed king, the Ammonites come and besiege one of the cities in Israel. And by the Spirit of God, Saul then leads a large Israelite army to victory over the Ammonites. And after this, Samuel leads the people of Israel to renew the kingdom under Saul's kingship before the Lord. And then in chapter 12, in Samuel's old age, Samuel gives a farewell address, a retirement speech, calling the people to fear and follow the Lord with all their heart and reminding them that they have rejected their divine king in the way that they have requested a king for themselves. This morning, let me... Uh, just say, I think the main point of these, or the main point of these chapters is that God Himself is our King, and we flourish as the people of God only as we trust and follow Him alone. God is our King, and we flourish only as we trust and follow Him alone. Now, why does the Scripture tell us these stories? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, as he's thinking about the stories of Israel wandering through the wilderness in the desert, he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So as he thinks about what's happening in Israel, he's thinking we read these stories and we learn what happened in Israel as an example for ourselves. We can learn things from these stories, particularly about how not to desire evil like they did. And I think this passage of Scripture functions in the same way. These stories are told about the way the people of Israel rejected God as their king in order to be an example for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. So what kind of context are we in, in this passage? The people of Israel are meant to be in covenant with God at this time. They're meant to follow what Moses had proclaimed in the book of Deuteronomy during his farewell address that was similar to the one that Samuel gives at the end of this section. I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a moment so that we can learn the kind of lives that the people of Israel during this time were supposed to be living in relationship with God as their king. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, Moses says to the people, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 10, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers... Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. So Moses is giving these words to the people as they're about to cross into the promised land. And he's saying to them, when you get into the promised land and you live in covenant with your God, remember these things. When you live there, you're meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. In other words, your whole being is meant to be devoted to the Lord. 
He calls on them not simply to be devoted to the Lord, but to make sure that they don't forget the Lord and make sure that they don't forget that the Lord has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And he's calling on them to fear the Lord alone and to serve him and not to go after other gods. Their lives were meant to be devoted fully to the Lord. In fact, in this chapter is when Moses tells the people that you should steep your life in the, in the words of God. You should talk about them when you lie down and when you rise up. You should teach them diligently to your children and talk about them at the dinner, t- dinner table and, and wear them around your wrists and on your forehead so that you can remember the words of the Lord, that God is your king and that God guides you and that His word is your guide in every way. This was the way that the people during the time of Samuel were supposed to be living. They were still under this covenant of love. God was still their king. God was still guiding him, them by His word. This was the first point we want to make from this, uh, this, these chapters today is that God's people should be wholly devoted to God as their king, just like Moses taught in Deuteronomy 6. Now what we see in these six chapters is that the people were not doing this. We've already learned in this series as we are in the time of the judges that one of the central problems of the people of Israel of this time were that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, which is just the opposite of what Moses had said in devoting ourselves to the word of the Lord. But these chapters reveal to us that the problem here is not simply that everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes, but what lies at the heart of that is that people are rejecting God as their king. They're not trusting and submitting to God as their divine king. If you look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. This is when they've requested a king. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So Samuel, God is saying, don't be offended that they are rejecting you as their judge and prophet at root They are rejecting me as their king. And they are forsaking me in order to serve other gods. Or look down in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. It says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. So they're they're digging in their heels as, as Samuel is teaching them the problems that the king will bring when he's established. They say, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So in this way, you see, the people are rejecting God as their king. They want a king that will judge them and will fight their battles for them. And the strange thing about this is just God has just defeated the Ammonites for them 
in battle. He has just shown himself to be mighty and powerful to win the victories for them and to be their judge. And at this time, after that, they're turning from God as their king and they're saying, no, we want a king like all the other nations in order to judge us and to fight our battles. Why would they need a king to fight their battles when they have just watched God do this? And how often does this happen in the history of God's people? They have watched God part the Red Sea and conquer the Egyptians. They have watched God provide for them in so many ways as they're wandering through the wilderness. They've watched God win their victories time and time again and do things that they thought were impossible. And yet, here they're rejecting God as their king and turning to be devoted to another king that they are asking for. We see also in chapter 8, in verse 8, as we just read, that people are not just rejecting God as king, but they are serving other gods. Another thing we see here that's that's a problem is that they are wanting to pattern their lives after the nations. If you look here in 1 Samuel 8, uh, verse 5, notice what they say. They said to Samuel, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Or down in verses 19 and 20 again of chapter 8, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. So they're rejecting God as their king. They're not trusting Him to be their judge and to fight their battles. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. But they're also desiring to be like all the nations. Now this was very much an affront to the covenant they had with God. This was in essence to say, God, we don't want you anymore. It's like the people that were wandering in the wilderness when they were saying, we want to go back to Egypt. Things were better in Egypt. We're tired of being associated with God as our king. We want a king like the nations have. And again, the covenant that they had with God was, was a call to them to be distinct from the nations, to be a light for the nations of God good, God's good word and God's good rule over them. But what they were doing here is saying, we don't want that anymore. We don't want God as our king. We want to be like the nations. Now what we see on the bookends of this section is that Samuel is calling the people to be wholly devoted to God and God alone as their king. I want to show you in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So at the very beginning of this section and at the very end of this section, we see Samuel do the same thing. He calls the people to wholehearted devotion to God as their king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 3. It says, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So notice what Samuel is calling the people to here. He's calling them to be wholly devoted to the Lord. This is not meant to be a surface level devotion. It's not meant to be one devotion among many other devotions in their lives. What what Samuel is calling them to is to return to the Lord with all their heart, to direct their heart to the Lord and to serve Him only. 
Being devoted to the Lord involves the whole self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you see that Samuel, when he, when he thinks that the people should be wholly devoted to the Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength, it involves them in taking concrete actions to put away sin in their lives, to put away those things in their lives that are keeping them from being wholly devoted to the Lord. He says, as you see there, put away the foreign gods. And this is the way repentance should work in the life of someone who is under God's kingship. As we devote ourselves to the Lord, we do it from the heart. We do it fully with our whole being. And we take concrete actions in our lives to say, where are those places where I'm trying to be devoted to more things than just God? What do I need to do? What steps do I need to take to demonstrate my devotion to the Lord from the heart? So he's calling on them not simply to have a heart trust, but to put away their gods. Now if you look again at verse 12 of chapter 7, verse 12 of chapter 7, It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now, the Lord has helped us. So you see what Samuel is doing. He's calling on them to be wholly devoted to the Lord and he's suggesting to them that their trust can be fully in the Lord because the Lord is the one who has helped them. It's not the gods of the nations. Or it's not a king that's like the nations that will be the help to them. God alone is the help to them. And he goes on to say in chapter 12, the, at the end of the story, chapter 12, notice what he says in verse 14. Again, this is Samuel's retirement speech. What's on his mind again is the same kind of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. He says in verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you and the King who reigns over you will follow the, your, the Lord your God, it will, be, it will be well. And then if you look down at verse 20, verse 20, He says to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Now notice what he said so far. I want you to turn, as uh, to turn aside. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. Do it with all your heart. Not half-heartedly, but with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. So all the things that the people of Israel were giving themselves to, their own wisdom instead of God's, the gods of the nations that they thought could help them and serve them, these things cannot profit or deliver. They are empty. So he's calling on them to recognize this. But then notice verse 22, that for the Lord will not forsake His people, for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people 
for himself. So as he's calling the people toward wholehearted, wholehearted devotion to the Lord, he's recognizing that this is not just uh, something where they should agree that the Lord is their king. No, he's suggesting to them that the Lord is actually trustworthy. He's not empty. He is the one who can profit and deliver. And he's shown himself to be able to do that. The Lord does not forsake his people. If you put your trust in anything else, it will fail you. Anything of any kind. The Lord will never forsake his people. And moreover, it is the Lord himself and only the Lord himself who loves you and makes you his treasured possession. That's what he says right there in verse 22. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So we have good reason to be wholly devoted to the Lord with our whole heart because God is always trustworthy when nothing else is and because God loves us and makes, his, makes us a treasured possession unlike anything else or anyone else. This divine kingship that we have is grace from a God who carries His people and defends His people and works for His people and loves His people. So Samuel calling them to wholehearted devotion is, is calling them to a life of receiving grace and receiving the one who helps. Our whole lives should be devoted to God and under God. A couple of years ago, I read a book by Rosaria Butterfield called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And Rosaria Butterfield was a woman who was living in a homosexual relationship. She was a professor teaching at Syracuse University. And her subject matter that she taught was uh, homosexual studies. And there was a pastor, a local pastor who lived in the area who invited Rosaria into his home and he befriended her and he cared for her. And she got the sense from him that, she, that he was not just playing evangelistic tricks on her, but he was caring for her and uh, desiring to be a friend with her. In fact, she says, what struck me so much about what this pastor did was he didn't just spend a little time with me. He spent pricey time with me. He spent costly time with me as a friend. She began to read the Bible, began to think about the God of heaven. And she describes her conversion in the book like this. As she talks about the night when she truly trusted Christ... She says, that night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character, and notice this part, I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. So notice what she's saying here. 
She's saying that I, as I come to realize that God is the God of heaven, that there is no one besides Him, as I come to realize that Jesus is the real and risen Christ, then I also come to realize that He is the one who defines my life for me. I don't do what's right in my own eyes. In this particular instance, the way I'm living my life doesn't feel like sin. It feels like normal life, plain and simple. But she's saying if God is God and if Jesus is risen, then He is God. And what He says is right for me and what He says is good for me and what He says is best for me. She says, I pray that if, if my life was actually His life, that He would take it back and make it what He wanted it to be. I asked Him to take it all. My sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. She's saying, I'm not planning just to agree that God is true. I'm not planning to make God one devotion among many in my life. I'm planning to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all my heart, with all that I am. And I'm asking God, God, you tell me who I am. You tell me who I should be. Take it, every part of me, everything that I hold tightly to, everything that I make a God out of in my life, those things that we just talked about a minute ago that eventually will prove to fail us and be empty for us. Take it all. So what this story teaches us, I think, is that God's people should be wholly devoted to God as our King. Holy from the heart and holy in such a way that we hand it to Him and ask Him to take it, whatever that might be, whether we understand what He's doing or not. I love what she says there because what she says there comes as a stark contrast to what we see so much in our lives and in the world we live in. We need more of this and we need it in our own hearts. The second thing we learn from this chapter or from these chapters is not only should God's people be wholly devoted to Him as King, but also God's King should lead the people to be wholly devoted to God. I think that these really are the two main messages that these chapters are trying to get across to us that we can learn from as we take these examples that we might not desire evil as they did. These chapters are trying to teach us to be wholly devoted to God and they're trying to teach us that God's King should lead the people to be wholly devoted to God. So the people request a king like the other nations and Samuel's not happy about it. And, and God is not either because what they are doing is asking for a king like the other nations have with the intention of pushing God away as their king and uh, with the intention of going their own way rather than God's way. But the request for a king was not wrong necessarily in itself because God had promised at some point in Israel's history, Israel would have a king. They just weren't doing it in the right way. And the question is, what should the king be like when he does come? And again, I want to turn to Deuteronomy to 
to get the picture here. Because everything that's happening in the book of Samuel is rooted in what Moses is calling the people to in Deuteronomy. So if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 20, Moses gives the instructions for what God's king should be like when he comes. And he says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So what is God calling the king of Israel to be like? Well, more than anything else, he should be a king who's devoted to the word of the Lord. So much so that he should take the word of the Lord and copy it out by hand himself and read it all the days of his life. Not, not merely as an academic exercise, but so that he himself will learn to fear the Lord his God in his heart. So that he might be wholly devoted to the Lord with his life. And also that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. It's a recognition that God is still our king. God, the divine king is the ultimate king. So even Israel's king, when he comes, places himself under the kingship of God. And he leads the people according to the word of God and according to the ways of God. That's his purpose. And that's not the kind of king that the people in Samuel were asking for. If you read on in Deuteronomy 17, you see Moses say not only that the king should devote himself to the word of God in order to place himself under God's kingship, but he also warns that when the kings of Israel come, they should not devote themselves to acquiring riches, to acquiring horses, to surrounding themselves with uh, all these things that might turn their heart away from trusting and being devoted to the Lord. Now what we see in 1 Samuel, I'm going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Th these were the very things that Samuel was warning the people about. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Samuel warns them, when you have your king, he's going to do all the things that Moses warned us about in Deuteronomy 17. Look at 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys to put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Notice what Samuel is warning them of. When the king comes, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And what he will take will 
line his own pockets and it'll make your lives more difficult. This is not the picture of the king that Moses called for in Deuteronomy 17 who places himself under the word of God and doesn't raise himself up above his brothers, but he trusts in the Lord rather than the riches. So we learn from these chapters what the king should be like by learning what he shouldn't be like as well. But this leads me to the third point here. And that is that these chapters that speak about the calling of Saul as king, they set the context for us for what, what type of king Israel should be waiting for, should be hoping for. That God eventually sends. Let's notice a few things about Saul. If you know about Saul, you know that eventually Saul rejects the word of the Lord. He turns from God. And we'll get to that part of the story later. In these chapters, Saul, in many ways, is a fitting king. He is the kind of king that God desires. And he sets some patterns that we can notice. A few things about Saul. First of all, Saul comes from humble circumstances. He comes from hu humble circumstances. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, as Samuel has spoken to Saul about becoming king of Israel, it says, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, why then have you spoken to me in this way? So you get the sense that as Samuel is speaking to Saul about becoming king, Saul is not doing a power grab. He's not interested in power. He thinks little of himself and of his tribe and of his clan. I'm the least. I'm from the least place, from the least family. Why would you look to me for this? And the answer to that question, I think, is what we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 during Hannah's song. 1 uh, Samuel chapter 2 verse 8, listen to what Hannah said. God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So in other words, Saul was just the right kind of candidate in this way. He comes from humble circumstances because this is the way God loves to do it. This is the way He always does it. He calls those from humble circumstances, from weak circumstances, from poor circumstances, from outcast circumstances, and turns them into kings and princes. And He's done this all throughout His history. Another thing we can learn about what we should expect for God's king is that he should be appointed by God Himself. In other words, the people should not be the one to make the choice. God Himself should be the one to make the choice. If you look in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel? So God is the one who chose him. And then in verse 24 of chapter 10, it says again, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. 
So Saul comes from humble circumstances. Saul is chosen by God. Another thing we notice about the king in 1 Samuel chapter 10 is that the Spirit comes upon him to enable him to accomplish his task of ruling as a king of Israel. Look at chapter 10 verse 6. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, is speaking to Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And if you look down at verse 10, you see this happen. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So God's king comes from humble circumstances. He's chosen by God. The Spirit of God comes upon him. We see also from these chapters that, God, that God's king saves the people from their enemies. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 1, as Samuel says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? He says, And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. This is exactly what Saul went on to do in this battle against the Ammonites. We also see that the king is supposed to soak in and submit to God's Word. As we come to expect from Deuteronomy 17. This was Samuel's role as prophet to speak the Word of God to the king. And the king was to submit to it. We see that at the end of chapter 9 in verse 27. As they were going to, down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here for yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So the king must know the word of God and trust the word of God and submit to the word of God. We can see one more, at least, characteristic here of Saul as king. And that is he trusts the Lord as the ultimate king and deliverer, which is what we would expect from what we've already seen. In chapter 11, verse 13, after Saul had won the victory over the Ammonites, many of the people wanted to put to death those who doubted Saul's kingship earlier. But notice what Saul says. Verse 13, it says, But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul does not take matters into his own hands. He extends mercy because he recognizes that the Lord alone is the one who has achieved the victory. Not him. It's not rooted in his own sufficiency. It's God who is the deliverer. So even though Saul comes to fail, as king and distrust the word of God later on in his kingship, we see some patterns here that arise about what kind of king we should expect. And ultimately, the king we expect is Jesus. He's the one who fulfills these things. Jesus fits the pattern of all these things in every way. Jesus comes from humble circumstances, doesn't he? He's born to a poor family who has to offer turtle doves uh, when they come to the temple to make their sacrifice for him according to the commands for the poor in the law of Moses. He's born in a, and laid in a manger and, and the shepherds come to see him. 
But we also see these other characteristics. The fact that he's chosen by God to be the king. The fact that the Spirit comes upon him for his kingly ministry. The fact that he submits to the Word of God. The fact that he trusts in his Father. If you think about the baptism of Jesus, when he comes to be baptized, it's a coronation of a king, isn't it? He comes up out of the water and the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him like a dove in order to anoint him for his kingship. And the Father speaks from heaven two scriptures that reveal that he's chosen Jesus to be his king. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's anointed and chosen by God to be the king for his royal task. We then see Jesus do all the things faithfully that Israel and the kings of Israel failed to do. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by Satan and he comes out faithful on the other side in ways that Israel and her kings never did. We also see as we get through the waters of baptism and the wilderness wandering, Jesus goes up on a mountain like the God of heaven did on Mount Sinai. And He gives us His kingly instruction and His Word. And He says to us when He finishes that instruction that all who hear these words of mine and do them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock so that when the storms came and beat against that house, the house stood. Jesus is saying that His kingly Word is our guide and it is good for us. But as we look to this kingly Word of Jesus, we recognize that He's not just the King who comes to rule us, but He's also the King who came to save us, to deliver us, and He did that Himself by giving Himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. So He's the King who delivers. He's the King who guides us. And so this morning, as we think about these stories from 1 Samuel, let's let them remind us to be wholly devoted to God as our King from the heart in every way. Let's let them remind us of the promise of a King who would come and ultimately that God sent His King who is Jesus to save us. Let's hear these words from 1 Samuel 12 one more time as a call to us as we think about this. 1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 20. Let's hear these words as though Samuel were speaking them to us ourselves. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Now look at verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. And notice this. For consider what great things He has done for you through His King who has died for sinners and risen from the dead. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you this morning for teaching us to be wholly devoted to you as our King. I pray, Lord, that we'll, we will see that not as heavy news, but as such good news, that you are a King who is willing to guide us by your good word. You're a King who is willing to give us the kind of word as our King that will lead us to flourish under your care. And not only are you a God who gives us a good word, but you are a God who delivers us, a God who saves us, a God who is always faithful. We can trust you. So this morning, draw us, Lord, to be devoted to you fully, wholeheartedly. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us ultimately to look to our great King who, who came in hum humble circumstances and took on our sorrows, laid down his life for our sins, so that we could be rescued, so that we could come under His great kingship. Lord, we, we want to have You as our King. We don't want to serve other gods. We don't want to give ourselves to useless things. We want to trust You, be wholly devoted to You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.